read the word of God this evening in the prophecy of Amos, the third chapter. Amos chapter 3. Our text tonight will be the first eight verses of the chapter, and I ask that you pay special attention to the first eight verses as we read the chapter. Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city? And the Lord hath not done it. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Publish in the palaces at Ashdod, and in the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and the the oppressed in the midst thereof, for they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, And he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Thus saith the Lord, As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed, and in Damascus in a couch. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground, and I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the house shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end saith the Lord. Thus far, we read the word of God. This passage addresses itself to the refusal of the people of Israel to receive and honor the word of Amos as the very word of God. That is why Amos begins, as he does, with the call to Israel Hear this word. The people of Israel were not bold enough to reject the word of the Lord outright. 
but they denied the claim of the prophet that he was speaking that word of God. Israel would profess that it would hear the voice of God, but it maintained that it could not hear and did not need to hear the voice of God in the voice of the shepherd from Tekoa. There are two simple but very important points that the Word of God makes in this entire section from the first, from the third chapter of the prophecy of Amos. First of all, there is such a relationship between Jehovah God and his prophets that what the prophets speak, God speaks. Their voice is his voice. The second point follows from the first, and that is that the people of Israel must receive and honor the voice of the prophet as the very voice of God. Hearing him, they do not, in fact, hear Amos, but they hear the roar of the lion. The New Testament makes these same two points. When Christ sent out the apostles, he said to them, whoever hears you, hears me. And whoever refuses to hear you, refuses by virtue of that fact to hear me. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 praises the saints at Thessalonica for receiving the word of God which the apostles brought, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. These two points, beloved, are applicable to the church today. We need to hear these two points that the Holy Spirit makes in the first part of Amos 3. For there is the very same effort today to drive a wedge between the word of the prophet and the word of God, to despise the prophet and yet claim to be interested to hear the word of God. There is, first of all, the effort of some to refuse to acknowledge the scriptures as the word of God and therefore to refuse to submit to the doctrine and warning of the scriptures, although they claim to be people that are willing to hear the word of God. The scriptures, they say, are not the word of God. We can reject them without rejecting. There are in the second place churches that refuse to listen to the rebuke that the true church gives to them concerning their errors and idolatry and superstition because they say that rebuke is only the rebuke of this or that church 
and only the interpretation of the scriptures by this or that church. Although they claim that they are certainly willing to receive God's word. How often has it not happened that men have responded to our earnest admonition and rebuke concerning their departure in false doctrine or a wicked course of life by saying, that is only your interpretation of the Bible. We need pay no attention to your rebuke, even though we have showed plainly from the scriptures that that doctrine is in error or that that course of life is a departure from God's law. And among us, it sometimes happen, happens that the preaching of the minister is dismissed as being only the ideas of the preacher and the warnings of that particular minister of the gospel so that we can safely set aside what he has preached and warned without, of course, running afoul of God's word. That happens especially when the preaching of the word admonishes us for our errors or when the preaching of the word insists upon our obedience to some requirement of the word of God that we have made up our mind we are not going to do. Then we say, he's just a man. Those words are just his ideas. We need pay no attention to the prophet. Over against those evils, which are all too real in the church today, there is in our text a defense of the word of the prophet. And that defense of the word of the prophet is not made by the prophet himself, but by Jehovah God. He arises at this juncture to give a defense of the prophetic word. Let's consider that tonight. The necessity of that defense, first of all, the nature of it, secondly, and the effect of it, finally, in defense of the prophetic word. <clears throat> the reason why the people of Israel rejected Amos and his word was that Amos was prophesying against them. That's brought out in verse 1, where the prophet says, Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. The word of the prophet, because of which he was rejected, was a word of admonition and a word of judgment. The prophet was exposing the sins of the people of Israel. He was warning them of the wrath of God against them, to which they were exposed if they persisted in this sin. He was prophesying upon them a terrible judgment from God. He had done that already in the last part of chapter 2, and he will do that again in the last part of as we have read. 
The preaching of the prophet was negative preaching. It was negative preaching against the whole family that God brought out of Egypt, not only against the ten tribes to which Amos was sent, therefore, but also negative preaching against Judah, the tribe and nation from which the prophet had come. The ministry of Amos was a ministry on behalf of a righteous God who was stirred by the iniquity of his people and who announced himself through the prophet to be a God who is ready to come down upon the people in judgment. The ministry of Amos is the ministry of the lion's roar. As the lion roars when he has the prey before him, and is about to spring upon that prey. So now through Amos does God give a mighty warning as the people of Israel stand before him, ready to be mauled by him on account of their sins. Just exactly because that was the nature of his ministry was Amos rejected as a prophet of God by Israel. Israel had a theological reason for this rejection of the word of Amos. They were good theologians, in a way, in Israel. There are in the church some rough customers who have made up their mind what they are going to do and who apparently are determined to pay attention neither to God or man when they are contradicted in their purposes. And then when the preaching of the word calls them to account, they simply say, get out of my way. I pay no attention to you and what you say. I have my mind made up. This is what I am going to do. The people of Israel were not like that. They had a reason in theology for rejecting Amos. We are the family of God, they said. We are God's covenant friends. We are the chosen people. We have been redeemed out of Israel. We have a special position in the midst of the world. And for that reason, no one can warn us. Let no one threaten judgment against us. Let no one say to us, God is going to visit upon you your sins. Since that was the ground for their rejection of him, Amos speaks of that in verse 2. In the name of God, he says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And he says that to them immediately after he has said in verse 1 that the word of the Lord against them is a word against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. What the people of Israel said about themselves was true. God speaks that to them through the prophet also. 
They are God's family. They are the people that have God to their father. Their life is a life of fellowship with God on the order of children with their parents. This covenant position of theirs was accomplished through God's redemption of them out of the land of Egypt. And all of this was due ultimately to God's gracious election of them in eternity. That is the fountain and source of the salvation and privileged covenant position of the nation of Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That is a testimony to election. God has eternally chosen this nation unto salvation. He has chosen this people to be his covenant friends. He has chosen them in love. That's the knowledge that the text speaks of. Certainly in an intellectual way, God knows all of the nations of the world. When he says to Israel, you only have I known, he is speaking of the knowledge of love. In love he has chosen this people. This election of Israel involves reprobation, the reprobation of all the other families and peoples on the face of the earth. God brings that out when he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He has rejected them from eternity. He does not know them in love. He does not deliver them by the blood of the Passover lamb. And he does not give them by his grace to be his family and to enjoy his covenant friendship, which is eternal life. Israel's position, therefore, is a unique position. They are privileged and blessed above all the peoples of the earth. This, beloved, applies to the church of Jesus Christ. Not only is it the case that just as Israel was known by God from all the families of the earth, so is the church known, but we are known with that knowledge that God knew Israel with. God's election of Israel was an election of her in Christ so that that election is fulfilled in Christ and in those who are Christ's, that is, the church of the new dispensation. You are God's family. You live that life of friendship with God. You have been brought up out of the land of bondage by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you have all of this ultimately because God has known you from eternity with electing love. But from this great truth, Israel drew some bad, false conclusions. Basically, the conclusion that they drew from this was that now they could sin with impunity. They were secure in their sin. 
They could go on in their sin and they would never have to be afraid that their sins would be visited upon them. They never had to be afraid of any judgment of God. They could close their ears to the roar of the lion. In the name of election, in the name of redemption, in the name of the covenant, in the name of salvation by grace, Israel cried down every prophet who tried to warn them. Israel argued against the testimony of their own conscience and would hear no warning of judgment. There is a similar danger for the Church of Christ in the world today. It is not the case, beloved, that the only danger that threatens the Church is that she denies that salvation is by grace. There is also the danger that she foolishly and wickedly draws false and bad conclusions from salvation by grace, as did Israel. A church may simply go to sleep spiritually. Her profession remains orthodox. But the church has absolutely no interest in the doctrines of Holy Scripture, in the truth of the Word, has no zeal for God's kingdom, and the members of the church live openly secular, that is, worldly, lives of disobedience. Then, if God should send a prophet to a church that has fallen asleep like that, at first they would be puzzled, and then they would become angry. And they would say, why doesn't that man preach grace? Why doesn't he come with the gospel? Or a church may have more consciousness of doctrines than that church that has fallen asleep. She may be quite aware of the truth of salvation by grace and of eternal predestination. Draw the conclusion from those doctrines of grace that there is to be no warning, no admonition, no talk of judgment upon those who do not walk in the ways of the covenant of God. And then a preacher who would come with a ministry as the ministry of Amos would be repudiated by that church because he is not a gospel preacher and a gospel prophet. The Lord does not trouble himself to expose the error in the argument of his people. The Lord contents himself by contradicting that argument. It is true, he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. There is no denial or minimizing of the great truth of salvation by grace. On the contrary, the Lord emphasizes that that is the case with Israel. But from that, Jehovah draws exactly the opposite conclusion that was drawn by Israel. 
Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's a striking conclusion. Perhaps we're surprised by the conclusion that God draws in verse 2. He will punish Israel for all their iniquities. He will do that not in spite of the fact that he has known them as his special people, but he will do that because they are chosen and known by him as his people in the world. Therefore, because you are saved by grace, I will punish you for your iniquities. Although God does not explain how that conclusion follows from salvation by grace, we may investigate that for a moment tonight to see why it follows that he will punish Israel for their iniquities. When the Lord speaks of punishing Israel here, that does not refer to a destruction of her utterly in his hatred for her. Were that the case, the conclusion would be in direct contradiction of the premise. First, God would say, I love you, and then he would say, because I love you, I'm going to destroy you in my hatred. God is not so illogical as that. Generally, what the Lord means is, because I know you, I will not let you get away with your sins. Because I have chosen you, I will never allow you to sin against me with impunity. Because I love you, I am going to bring, bring trouble and misery into your life when you walk in ways of disobedience. Concretely, there is certainly punishment for the reprobate husk of the nation of Israel. That nation was chosen by God, but not every individual in that nation was chosen by God. The New Testament explains that there was at the heart of Israel an elect kernel, a remnant, and that that was the true Israel. Around that kernel, there is a great husk or shell, the majority in the Old Testament of the people of Israel who were reprobate. God would visit upon them their sins in the full sense of the word punishment. They would pay by suffering his wrath for their disobedience impenitently continued in. In the second place, as regards the elect Israel, their sins, too, will be visited upon them. But their sins will be visited upon them, as far as punishment is concerned, in Jesus Christ, who is the elect of God. The sins of the elect do not go unpunished, but God punishes them in Jesus Christ. Having done so, God sanctifies his elect people. And then when his elect people wickedly walk in disobedience to him, God brings trouble and misery into the lives of his people. Even then, he does not allow them 
to get away with their sins. He chastises them. Now, as a matter of fact, already at the time that Amos was prophesying this, God had brought many evils into the nation of Israel. That's why in verse 6, the prophet asked the question, Shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? God had sent an earthquake. God had sent various forms of catastrophes and plagues so that there was some famine in Israel. He was visiting their sins upon them in the sense that he chastised them for their sins so that they would repent and walk again in his ways. Now in this last sense, in the sense of chastisement, <clears throat> God's punishment of his people for their sins follows from the fact that he has chosen them to be his people in love. First, God is a holy God, and the people who are to dwell with him are to be holy also. God cannot have those who are unholy. Because he demands and requires that his friends and family shall be holy, he chastises his sons and daughters when they stray so that they will be holy. In the second place, it is exactly because God loves his people that he sends the evils upon them for their sins. He disciplines them in his love. He will not let them go on in idolatry and disobedience. Because he loves them, he will punish them for their sins. Every parent knows the truth of that. What father among us says to his child, I love you. I love you above all the other children in the world because you're my children and therefore I'm going to let you get away with all your sins. No father talks like that. But a father says to his children, I love you. I love you uniquely. You're my children. And therefore, whereas I will not punish the sins of the neighbor's children upon them, I will punish you for your iniquities. This is what God says to the church of the new dispensation. I know you, and therefore I will visit upon you your sins. Those who are members of the visible church but are not true members of the church by election and faith, are warned in the preaching of the word that because of their sins they shall not enter into the kingdom of God. The elect people of God are told about their sins that so far is it from being true that they get away with their sins and can sin with impunity, that God punished those sins, every one fully, in Jesus Christ. That creates a wholly different view of our sins than the view that comes from supposing that our sins go unpunished. To these same people of God, the preaching of the word says, and when you walk disobediently to this covenant God of yours, he will bring evils and troubles into your life so that you repent and walk in his ways. Salvation is by grace alone. And the conclusion that follows from that is always, therefore, I will visit upon you all your iniquities. 
The people of Israel do not do well, therefore, when they reject Amos as a prophet of God because Amos comes with a word of admonition and judgment. God himself arises here in defense of this prophetic word of judgment. He does that by asking Israel four questions. There is a list of questions in this passage. Basically, they are four in number. Each of those questions has to do with some common aspect of earthly life in Israel. Even the little children of Israel knew what God was talking about when God said, Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? And can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? God is instructing Israel here, but he is instructing them by these rhetorical questions. And that has a certain power and force. It drives home the truth that God wants to teach, that he brings this truth across by asking questions. Questions, the answer to each of which is obviously no. No, two can't walk together unless they're agreed. And no, a lion won't rest unless he has a prey. And no, a bird won't fall into the snare where no gin is. And no, a trumpet won't blow in the city, and the people shall not be afraid. The truth that God drives questions is the truth that there is agreement between the voice of the prophet and his voice, that the word of the prophet is the same as the voice of God, and that therefore Israel ought to hear and heed the voice of the prophet Amos. That's how we must read these questions. The two who are walking together are Jehovah and the prophet Amos. Amos is walking around through Israel because God called him to meet him there. And God is walking with Amos through the land of Israel. But those two, God and his prophet, would not be walking together unless they were agreed. Agreed in the word of admonition and judgment that Amos speaks to the people of Israel. Just as a lion roars in the forest, only when he has a prey before him that he is ready to spring on, so Amos the prophet is the roar of Jehovah God towards Israel upon whom he is ready to come with judgment. Just as a bird falls into the net on the ground, when that silly bird has got itself in the noose because it went for the bait that the fowler put out, so silly Israel has plunged itself into the snare of the judgment of God by yielding to the enticements of sin. Just as in those days when a catastrophe was impending, they blew a trumpet in the city, something like our blowing of the sirens today when a tornado is sighted. So also the voice of Amos the prophet is the trumpet of God 
alarming Israel to repentance because of the evil that God is about to send upon the city. How foolish of Israel to dismiss the prophet Amos as though he were not speaking the word of God. That is as foolish as to suppose that two can walk together who have not been at agreement. And that is as foolish as to suppose that a lion roars in the forest when he has nothing before him, or that a bird is in the snare when there has been no noose set for him, or that a trumpet blows in the city and the people will not be afraid. Then the Lord expresses it plainly in verses 7 and 8. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? The people of Israel have tried to drive a wedge between God and the prophet, have tried to separate the word of God from the word of God's prophet. And now God, in defense of the prophet and the prophetic word, makes the most tremendous claim for the word, for the prophetic word, for the ministry of the gospel by the New Testament church. Do you see that? God will do nothing, nothing at all, unless he has revealed his secret unto his servants, the prophets. God has secrets. The things that he is going to do in the world, all the things that he is going to bring upon the church, all of the things that he is going to bring into the life of each member of the church, those are things that are hidden from us. We can't know them, says God going to show all those secrets to the prophets. Then those prophets are going to speak those things to the world and especially to the church. And I will not do one thing that I have not first revealed to my people through the prophets. Said Israel, we can have God without having the prophet. We can have the word of God without paying any attention to this interloping shepherd from Tekoa with his admonition and judgment. And God says, you can't have anything of me apart from the prophets whom I send. And all that you are going to experience, you are warned first of and instructed about through the ministry of the word. That's a tremendous claim for the ministry of the Word of God. The prophet is called by God. That calling of the prophet is meant in verse 8. That the lion hath roared with the result that a man fears refers to God speaking to the prophet, calling him to his prophetic office. Before the lion ever roared to Israel through Amos, the lion roared to Amos, and Amos in fear and trembling must take up the work of prophecy. The Lord God hath spoken, spoken to the prophet, calling him 
to the ministry of the word. And the only result is and can possibly be that that prophet is to prophesy. When the prophet speaks, God speaks. What the prophet says, God says. What the prophet threatens, God threatens, and will certainly bring to pass where there is no penitence. The effect of this defense of the word of prophecy must be found, first of all, in the prophet himself. There is an effect of this defense of the prophetic word in the prophet. The effect is that the prophet prophesies. He speaks God's word, and he speaks God's word in fear and trembling. There is an application of this to the whole New Testament church, and I'm talking now about the congregation. Because today it is the local congregation, the true church of Jesus, that has this great ministry of revealing the secrets of God and of speaking God's word in the midst of the world. The lion has roared to this congregation, not only in the sense that God speaks to us and we must obey, but he has roared to us, calling us to speak the word of God, to preach the gospel. The congregation has this calling from God. And we cannot be quiet with God's word. We cannot be quiet with his word to the church. You only have I known in grace. And we cannot be quiet with his word of warning. Therefore, I will visit your iniquities. We cannot be quiet because we stand in fear of the God who has called us to preach this word. Oh, there are many reasons why the church could become afraid. The church is the truth. Scorn her and get angry with her for speaking this word. And the world that hears this word opposes the church. We could be afraid of those enemies but we stand in fear and trembling before God who has called us to preach his word. God hath spoken to us. Who can but prophesy? What church can shut the mouth of the gospel when God has roared to her to speak? This, beloved, is the power of God for the deliverance of the church when she strays, the recovery of the church when she becomes spiritually lethargic, the restoration of the church when she departs from the ways of the living God. This is also the, the means, beloved, of maintaining the church in the truth and purity of the gospel. This prophetic word, this preaching of the gospel in both its aspects, you only have I known, and therefore I will visit upon you all your iniquities. There are some seriously wrong ideas about that today. 
people see the church in spiritual trouble and they look around for the, the reason for this and they look around for some means of delivering the church from this and they come up with bad answers. There are those who say we have to have a revival every 25 or 30 or 50 years, a kind of a mysterious revival. Then there are those who say we have to have mysterious, extraordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. Everything depends upon that. Then there are those who say we have to have a split every 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years, as if that's the means of God for the recovery and deliverance of his church. Wrong and foolish notions about the means of God to keep his church and to recover his church when his church strays. The means is the prophetic word, the lively preaching, preaching that says to God's people in God's name, he has known you and your position is that of covenant friends by grace and preaching that at the same time and therefore is lively to expose the sins of the church and to call the church to remembrance of their exposure to God's anger and even to threaten the judgments of God unless she departs from God's ways. That calls the church back. That revives the church. That builds the church up. And that keeps the church from year to year. There is an effect then upon the preacher through whom the church does this work. Amos could be afraid of Israel. The minister of the word sometimes gets afraid of the congregation or the churches to whom he speaks. When he is reminded by God that he has been called by God himself, that he speaks God's word to the church, then in fear for God he fears the face of no man. and He speaks admonitions and judgments boldly in God's name. There's also an effect of this defense of the prophetic word for us from the point of view of our then receiving this word. Israel, you remember, rejected the word. When God defends that word, the effect for God's people is that they receive and honor the word of the prophet. We do that, first of all, by receiving and submitting to these scriptures. Here is the word of the prophets. It's great twofold aspect. We don't say these scriptures we may reject and still honor God. Who honors these scriptures honors God. And who rejects those scriptures and their doctrine and admonitions rejects God himself. Those churches that depart ought to listen to the rebuke of the true church of Christ that comes with these scriptures. When the true church brings these scriptures, then God speaks. And finally, the congregation must receive and honor the words of the preacher who comes bringing these scriptures. congregation mustn't say, well, he's just a man. And the ideas we heard tonight or the ideas we heard 
this morning. That's what he thinks. And we don't have to pay any attention to those things if we disagree with them and if we don't like them. It certainly is not the case that the congregation is bound to receive everything that a minister of the gospel says. I didn't say that. I said they are to receive and honor the words of the minister bringing the scriptures. There are preachers who admonish the people to build them a multi-million dollar church building or to give them a Cadillac or to go with them to South America and start the kingdom of God there. And the Church of Jesus Christ doesn't expose herself to the disaster of submitting to every preacher who claims to speak in the name of God or even a minister who does come in the name of God when he doesn't speak out of the scriptures. When the minister of the word preaches out of these scriptures, even though he comes with admonitions and judgments that cut and that are unpleasant and not what we want, the effect of God's defense of the prophetic word is that we tremble at the word of God and the preaching and ministry of the gospel and do those things which God calls us to do. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, grant that we may honor thy word. And may we honor that word by repenting when we stray and humbly submitting to thy warnings which are for our good. We thank thee, Lord, for the ministry of the word. We thank thee for the prophetic word. We ask that thou bless it and strengthen it, and that thou wilt grant unto thy church ministers of the word who speak the truth that thou hast put in their lips, and do it faithfully and boldly. And wilt thou give fruit in the salvation of thy people. For Jesus' sake, amen.